Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we can come together and worship you and spend time in the Word. And Heavenly Father, I suspect that each man and each woman who hears my voice find themselves on a journey of faith or a journey away from their faith. Even now, they're in an upward journey of faith or they're in a downward spiral of unbelief, doubt, and distance from you. And Lord, it seems that it's most difficult to judge when you're in that place of going down or going up. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that each man and each woman, that their life would be marked by the reality that they know the Lord and that the Lord is with them. So we commit this time to you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Samuel chapter 16, beginning in verse 14, it says, But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. And Saul's servants said to him, Surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. Let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful, player, on the harp, and it will be that he will play it with his hand when the distressing spirit from God is upon you, and you shall be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide me now a man who can play well, and bring him to me. Then one of the servants answered and said, Look, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a handsome person, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son, David, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them by his son David to Saul. So David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. Then Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. And so it was, whenever the Spirit from God was upon Saul, that David would take a harp and play it with his hand, then Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would depart from him. Like I said, chapter 16 introduces us to David, and we're given the brief introduction earlier in the chapter. In verses 1 through 5, we're told where he lives, Bethlehem. We're told a little bit about his family in verse 10. And David's occupation, he's a shepherd in verse 11. And we're given a glimpse into what he may have looked like in verse 12. So he sent and brought him in. He was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And there's another little clue that's given us. If you look at the very next chapter in chapter 17, verse 42, it says, And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth. Ruddy, ruddy meaning red, and good-looking. 
We're also told of his anointing by the prophet Samuel in verses 12 and 13. But in verses 14 to the end of the chapter, we get yet another look at David's preparation and God's future plan for David. As a matter of fact, remember, in this particular portion of Scripture, two men are placed side by side for our examination and our warning and our encouragement. And like I said before, each one of us will typically find ourselves in a position where we're involved in a downward spiral or we're involved in an upward journey of faith. And the most difficult place to be is if you find yourself in a circumstance where you go, am I getting closer and closer and closer to the Lord, or am I getting further and further from the Lord? In his wonderful book, The Making of a Man of God, Alan Redpath wrote, quote, Let us examine the reason why one life should end in triumph and the other in tragedy. He writes, May God speak to your heart concerning the direction of your own life in its spiritual progress. I would remind you it is not a snap decision that decides your eternal destiny unless that decision for Christ is followed by a life that's directed by the Spirit of Christ. It's not valid because it is direction, trend, progress that evidences a man's destiny. People have the opportunity to look at you and watch you and evaluate you. And so, the Bible is filled with titles for David. Remember, we've already talked about the fact that he's called the man after God's own heart. And in verses 1 through 13, we see David moving from the position of being a shepherd, taking care of his father's sheep, to a songwriter and a singer. A musician in verses 14 through 23. In the next chapter, we'll see David as a soldier. And then later, a statesman, a scribe, and a sage. David is remembered as the sweet psalmist of Israel in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 1. And as David begins his approach towards the throne of Israel... It's going to be filled with difficulty and adventure. David is going to be hunted and hated and humbled and despised and pained and persecuted like his future famous son, the Lord Jesus. King Saul is impatient and can't wait, but David must wait, no matter how difficult the circumstance. David is going to be a man who is going to be placed in a position of authority and prosperity by the will of God. And so David must find his sufficiency in the Lord God of Israel. But it becomes a perfect example for you and for, you, for me. Because as you walk this journey that, that we call faith, your walk with Christ is going to find its sufficiency in Christ. You know, people have downloaded over 5 billion songs on iTunes. And I'm sure that the number continues to grow. I can't even imagine how many songs have been illegally downloaded. I don't need a show of hands. 
you know, growing up, I began life with a pile of records. And the pile of records was converted to a pile of 8-tracks. And then the 8-tracks were converted to a pile of cassettes. And then the cassettes were converted to a pile of discs. And the discs were all consolidated into the downloads of my iPod. As you can imagine, singing songs of worship and praise have been a part of humanity since the very beginning. And we discover that David is not only a faithful shepherd and a courageous soldier, but he's also a skilled musician. And this is important because it's that skill that will bring him face to face with the troubled king. The king suffers from a terrible malady. And David seems to provide the temporary cure. For many, music is like medicine and praise like Prozac. In its ability to transform mood, it was the founder of the Salvation Army, William Booth, who used to say, music for the soul, what wind is for the ship, blowing her onwards in the direction in which she is steered. And I'm sure that many of you many times have found yourself in a place of utter disaster and discouragement. And you put on a song. And the song begins to lift your heart as you praise the Lord and you begin to sing of His majesty and His beauty and His sufficiency and His grace and His mercy and His love. Music has power. It has power to persuade and it also has power to transform. And we begin with this curious case of of what I call Saul's demonic Disorder, And if you look in verse 14, it says, But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. Now, when the Bible says the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, I often wonder if this was the same thing like it occurred to Samson. Do you remember in the book of Judges where Samson goes through this series of tests and finally his hair gets cut and the Spirit of the Lord departs and he doesn't even know that the Spirit of the Lord has departed because he jumps up just like before. What does that mean? What does it mean that the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Well, clearly it means the Holy Spirit that was given to him in a specific anointing to act as both a judge and a king of Israel is removed. The Spirit was given to him to lead him and guide him, preserve him, and protect him and provide for him. But now the Spirit was unavailable to empower Saul to serve as king, and Saul would never experience the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. He would hear no word of comfort also from the prophet Samuel. And it's caused some people to wonder, well, here the Holy Spirit leaves Saul. Well, does that mean that the Holy Spirit can leave a believer? When a person becomes born again and they receive the Spirit of God, and let me just be blunt here, the answer, simply put, is no. 
The Holy Spirit will never leave a true believer, and the Holy Spirit was never with a make-believer. This is revealed in many different passages in the New Testament. For example, in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, it says, If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. And clearly the verse states, if someone doesn't have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, then that person isn't saved. Therefore, if the Holy Spirit were to leave a believer, that person would be lost. That person would not have a saving relationship with Christ. And clearly that's not what the Bible teaches. Over and over again we're given assurance concerning the permanence of the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence in the life of the believer. In John chapter 14, verse 16, Jesus talks about the fact that the Spirit would be with you forever. Jesus states that the Father will give you another helper and the Spirit will be with you temporarily, impermanently, until you do something stupid or weird. No, the Spirit will be with you forever. And the fact that the Holy Spirit will never leave a believer is also seen in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, where believers are said to be sealed by the Holy Spirit. And so you've got to understand something. For Saul, when the Spirit leaves into this void comes a distressing spirit. Now some people have been really troubled by the statement that this distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. People will go, well, I don't get it. Are you trying to tell me that the Lord would allow a distressing spirit to torment and afflict a particular person? The answer is yes. The reason why we know that is over and over and over again, we discover something. And that is for the person who rejects the Lord and who rejects God and who rejects the Holy Spirit, who rejects the promises of God and the provision of God, and they want to live a life of rebellion and disobedience, it becomes an invitation, if you will, to distress and disappointment. So what does this mean? A distressing spirit from the Lord Troubled him. Different Bible teachers have come to different conclusions. Some have suggested the text means that Saul was possessed by an evil spirit that was a result of the judgment on Saul because of Saul's disobedience. Saul was oppressed and vexed by an evil spirit or some demonic attack or some sort of influence that God allowed because of Saul's disobedience. Some evil messenger to oppress him. And some have suggested that this was a deep sense of guilt, a deep sense of depression, a deep sense of fear brought on and sustained by emotional and psychological problems, maybe even some form of mental illness, however you diagnose the problem. Saul's problem is directly linked to Saul's disobedience. And his refusal to repent. Saul has disobeyed the Lord and now Saul is reaping what he has sown. And the Bible makes it abundantly clear that God is not mocked. What a person sows that they also reap. And the hand of judgment was upon Saul. And the distressing spirit was upon Saul. And the distressing spirit that came upon him punished him. 
fed his guilt, fed his fear, fed his depression. And as you can imagine, the downward spiral began. You go from rebellion and disobedience to fear and more fear and even more fear and more guilt and more fear. And pretty soon you're going to see Saul acting out in very bizarre ways. The reality is the Holy Spirit was no longer there to hold Saul in check. Because Saul wanted to live a life free from the Word of God. Remember what Samuel had said to him? You do not want to obey God's Word. And therefore, the kingdom of God is taken away from you. You see, one of the real challenges that we have is the reality that our God gives us freedom. We have the ability to choose or choose otherwise. We're free to obey the Lord and we're free to disobey the Lord. And because Saul wanted to be free to be disobedient, Saul has chosen a life for himself and now that life is going to be entrenched as a part of his identity and a part of his destiny. Make no mistake about it, the choices that you make today won't just affect you today, but they'll set in motion a series of circumstances that will affect your whole life. As a matter of fact, there's a little clue given to us in the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 24, where Paul speaks concerning um, the suppression of truth and the denial of truth. And in Romans, chapter 1, verse 24, it says, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. And this idea of God giving them up becomes a way of saying that for the person who says, I don't want what the Bible has to say, I don't want God's obedience, I don't want God's plan, I don't want God's purpose, I want to be able to do what I want to be able to do. You know what is one of the worst things that could ever happen to you? Is that God gives you the ability to live out your rebellion and your wickedness and your disobedience. That's why obedience becomes such an important issue in the Bible. That's why over and over again Jesus says, If you love me, you'll obey me. You'll walk with me. The Lord gave Saul up to live exactly how Saul wanted. And because the Lord gave Saul up to live exactly as Saul wanted, the result was an evil spirit that troubled him and tormented him, and filled him with fear. And in verse 15 it says, And Saul's servant said to him, Surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. And remember, one of the reasons why they hold that particular position is because they understand the sovereignty of God. It was Martin Luther who said, Even the devil is God's devil. He has him on a chain. You'll remember when in the book of Job, when Satan presented himself before the Lord and the Lord said, Have you considered my servant Job that there's no one like him in all of the earth? 
And remember, Satan had to receive permission from God to afflict Job. And God is in firm control of the thermostat of your life. Even though you may be upset with some of the decisions that the Lord allows for your life, make no mistake about it. That sometimes the problems and the afflictions, the sorrows and the sufferings that you experience, it isn't simply a sorrow and a suffering. Sometimes one person's affliction becomes another person's promotion. And God is going to use the affliction of Saul to promote David to the place that God has ordained for David. And so the clever cure and David's special skill, look at verse 16. It says, let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is a skillful player on the harp. In the Hebrew, the word is Liar, not L-I-A-R, L-Y-R-E. It's a musical instrument. And in ancient Hebrew, they had a four-stringed instrument that was over the base of a piece of wood and that was made with sheep's gut, the, the small intestine of a sheep. And they would make a string and they would wrap it tightly and they would pluck it and it would make musical notes. And the word translated skillful means to know something Fully or completely, the idea is that David was an accomplished musician. And we know from history that even at this ancient time, from about 1000 BC, there were musical instruments that had flooded the Middle East. And even among the Greeks, there was a, a, a special um, story, a mythology that, that surrounded a person named Orpheus who had special skills, almost supernatural skills of playing a musical instrument in our own uh, culture and society. We think of people who have this extraordinary ability to play music. One of those guys who's really that good is a, is a guy named Phil Kagi who just plays the guitar like like it's supernatural what he is able to do. Ancient peoples believed that music could soothe passion and elicit emotional response, heal mental disorders, even quell riots. And so in verse 17 it says, So Saul said to his servants, Provide me now a man who can play well. And bring him to me. And in verse 18 it says, Then one of the servants answered and said, Look, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a handsome person, and the Lord is with him. So he gives them his resume. We're told... Well, we're actually not told which servant suggests the son of Jesse. But isn't it interesting that relationships and friendships and fellowships result in the fact that sometimes people that you know uh, begin to participate in what we might call the inner circle of power. And Saul is deeply distressed. Somebody might ask the question, well, what gives David the right to stand before the king? Well, guess what? He is a skilled musician. He is brave. And he is courageous. He's a soldier. 
He's wise in his speech. He's attractive in his appearance. Now I want to ask you a question. All of those skills, music, bravery, soldier, wisdom in speech, attractive in appearance, where did he get all those attributes and traits? Who arranged the genetic pattern for his father and his mother? Who arranged the skill set? Could David brag about anything? Not really. It was God who placed him in the family that he placed him in, gave him the gene pool that he embraced. It was God who made him strong, and it was God who made him handsome, and it was God who made him skillful. But you know what the real success was? It wasn't just his wisdom and speech and his attractiveness and appearance. Look what it says. And the Lord was with him. You know, it's interesting. That becomes the key to understanding the success in any given circumstance. Having the Lord with you. You'll remember the same was said of Joseph in Genesis chapter 39, verses 2 and 3. Over and over again, Joseph found himself in difficulty and tragedy and circumstances. And no matter how horrible, terrible the circumstances, over and over again, the testimony in the scripture is, and the Lord was with Joseph. And the Lord was with Joshua in Joshua chapter 6, verse 27. And the Lord was with Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 19. And you know what Joseph and Joshua and Samuel and David all had in common? These people embraced their calling and they knew their gift and they embraced the Word of God and they embraced the power of God. I want you to ask yourself this question. If someone was come to come to the conclusion that the Lord is with you, what would make that a possibility? And, and, and what, when you think about people that you know, and you begin to describe their circumstance and their character, and you ask and answer the question, how do you describe a person when you say that the Lord is with them, I'm going to suggest to you that it's exactly what was going on with Joseph and with Joshua and with Samuel and with David. They embraced their calling. They cultivated their gift. They received the Word of God and walked in the Word of God. And you might say, well, there were times when they didn't exactly walk in the Word of God. Well, that's true. But you'll notice that whenever they did walk in the Word of God, and they did walk in the grace and the mercy of God, and they did walk in the calling of God, the Lord was with them. As long as David followed the Lord, the Lord blessed him. Now, you might find yourself in times of great sorrow. You might find yourself in times of tragic circumstances. You might find yourself experiencing deprivation, like Joseph. Incarceration, like Joseph. False accusation, like Joseph. But guess what? The Lord was with him. 
the Lord was with him every step of the way. And guess what? The Lord will be with you if you walk with him. Make no mistake about it. If you wake up in the morning and you declare your love and your loyalty to Jesus, if you wake up in the morning and you embrace your calling, if you cultivate your gift, if you begin to embrace the Word of God and the power of God and follow the Lord, the Lord will bless you. And remember what David's name means. Darling. And remember the tribe that he comes from. Judah. And remember what that tribal name means. Praise. David will make melody to the Lord when he sings in the open field or in the palace. David will write music and sing songs in his heart. Now, I want you to ask this question. Do you suppose that David all of a sudden went on American Idol and became a a national phenom? Or do you think that there were times when it was just David and his harp and the bright stars and the black darkness and the songs that he sang to the Lord. David writes music in secret and he sings songs that will be heard only by the Lord. But now David is going to provide the oil of gladness to soothe the troubled heart. David will make the harp of God's own heart his instrument. And he will meet the power of evil with the sweet sounds of grace. And Saul's affliction wasn't simply to afflict Saul, but part of the affliction was designed to bring David into the court where he belonged. David will learn what it means to be a king. And in order to learn what it means to be a king, he's going to have to go to a place and learn what to do and what not to do. He's going to learn what it means to be a leader. He's going to learn the physical and financial circumstances of the nation. He's going to learn about his enemies. He's going to learn about the economy. He's going to learn about the military establishment. He's going to learn about the justice system. He's going to learn about the moral character of his people. He's going to learn about the servants who've been assigned to minister to the people. And he's going to learn about their character. He's going to learn who to trust and who not to trust. He's going to learn to be wise. And when you embrace the gift and the calling that God has placed in your life, God is going to push you in the direction of usefulness. God is sovereign and He rules over the earth. And I want you to just note quickly two things about David's arrival in Saul's court. The first thing that I want you to note is, does David orchestrate his own promotion? Does he put in a resume and go, hey, I would like to be the court musician? Does he push and prod and manipulate his way into a position of power? No. David doesn't orchestrate his own promotion. David isn't an ambitious man, desperately trying to climb the ladder of success. And so you should note that. 
God is responsible for David's promotion. Not David. You know, there may come a time where the Lord manifests favor on you. And when you least expect it, a person says to you, God wants to use you. He wants to use you because He has called you and He has forgiven you and He has gifted you and it is the Lord Himself who is calling you to a life of responsible ministry and service to Him. David will begin his life of public service. So number one, David isn't responsible for his own Success And number two, God is responsible for David's promotion. David will serve his apprenticeship. And do you know how long his apprenticeship is going to last before he is crowned the king? Not one year, not two years, not five years, not ten years, but for the next 14 years. The man who has been removed from office remains in office through the power of his own sheer will. I find this interesting from a New Testament standpoint because for 14 years, the other Saul, who will later become Paul the Apostle, finds himself for 14 years in a desert in Arabia. But God is preparing him. God is schooling him and instructing him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. You know, preachers are often told, never make yourself the object of any illustration. When I got saved, when I was 16 years old, two weeks later, (laughs) I turned 17. Three weeks later, I was elected student body president of my high school. How does that happen? How do you go from voted most likely to go to hell to the student body president? It was the favor of God. Four weeks, I started a Bible study at my high school campus. And as I started the Bible study, did I know everything about the Bible? I knew nothing about the Bible other than that God will save you. That, that Jesus was real, that He really lived and died and He rose from the dead, and that everything that you'd ever heard about the Bible was still true, and that God was in the business of saving people exactly like me. We see the principle over and over in the Scriptures. Joshua is Moses' servant before he becomes Moses' successor. Timothy serves Paul in the ministry. And guess what? It shouldn't shock you or surprise you that there is a process of humility and apprenticeship that becomes yours as you begin to learn what it means to pray for people and to love people and minister to people and to be faithful to people. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament it says this is the first quality. A steward must be found faithful. And so the Lord will put you in a position and call on you to be faithful in the little things so that you can be faithful in the large things. You know, if you're trying to push yourself into a place of prominent ministry without first proving your ministry, then I would ask you to prayerfully consider 
asking the Lord to find the place where you belong in faithful ministry and for you to be faithful. And as you're faithful in those small things, God's going to entrust you with larger and larger things. And in verse 19, look what it says, Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat and sent them by his son David to Saul. By the way, the goat, the bread, the wine... It's a sacrificial offering. It's an offering of bread. It's an offering of wine. It's an offering of meat. And in verse 21 it says, So David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. Note what's happened. The Lord places him in a position. Does Saul at this point have any idea that he is looking at his successor? He has no idea. Because if he had any idea, he would have killed the kid on the spot. But David comes and he experiences God's favor. The scriptures, by the way, speak of four members of Saul's household that were given a special relationship with David. And you know what's interesting? In each of those circumstances that are given in the Bible, it says, and here in verse 21, and he loved him greatly. Saul, who loved David. But I want to remind you of something, that Saul doesn't necessarily love David because of who David is, but because of what he can get from David. He's in trouble. By the way, he later hates David. And he will later seek to kill David. And Saul will be replaced by David. So you have family member number one who loves him for what he can get from him. Family member number two, Jonathan. Jonathan will strip himself for David. Jonathan is the legitimate heir through the carnal circumstances. Saul's son certainly could have been king, but Jonathan recognizes that he has never been called king by God, but rather that David is the one who God has anointed and appointed to be king. And Jonathan gladly, personally, gives himself in friendship and fellowship to the man who is rightfully king. Jonathan is Saul's heir. But Jonathan will step aside in order for David to be king. Michael, the daughter of Saul, will risk her life for David. But later she will despise him and be ashamed of him. Because Michael has set her mind on great things for herself. But David has set his mind on the things of God. And then there's a final family member, Mephibosheth, the crippled son of Jonathan, who will surrender everything for David. And David will be his all in all. 
It becomes a type and a picture of the broken person before the real and true king who receives the obvious grace of God. And then David, it says, becomes the armor bearer to the king. And that may not seem like a whole lot to you, but the armor bearer to the king was the person who serves almost like the chief of staff. He has access to that which protects the king. And then in verse 22 it says, Then Saul sent to Jesse saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. And it says in verse 23, And so it was, whenever the Spirit from God was upon Saul, that David would take up his heart and play it with his hand. Have you ever wondered what he might have sang? What songs do you think he sang? To Saul. Saul, go away, I'm no good for you. No, that's probably not it. He probably didn't sing that song. Do you think he sang, On the first part of the journey, you listen to all those lies. The rants and raves and rocks and slaves. The riches of the Amalekites. You've been through the desert on a donkey's refrain. Rejected God's word as a lie. You've been through the desert on a donkey's refrain. And abandoned the promise of life. Saul. No, he probably didn't sing that one either. Maybe he sang, Life's too short for small talk, so don't be talking trivia now. Excess baggage has filled this place, and it's more than we should ever allow. No, he didn't sing that one either, probably. What do you suppose he sang? He probably sang a lot of the same things that we sang when we opened up the worship service. Better is one day in your courts. Better is one day in your house. Better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You know what? All you have to do is just simply flip your Bible and go to the book of Psalms and begin to look at those songs that are listed as the songs of David. How did David know when the Spirit was upon the king? Would he erupt in madness? Would he erupt in sadness? Whatever it was, I want to draw your attention to this phrase, and Saul would be refreshed. By the way, that Hebrew term refreshed means to be made wide or to expand or to make spacious. The idea is that the grief and the sorrow and the pain and the madness and the sadness, that the madness and the sadness, have you ever been really mad or really sad and it felt like something had you by the throat and began to constrict you and squeeze you and manipulate you? And it says that when Saul heard David play, he would be refreshed. The idea is that that thing that put the squeeze on him began to be released. 
And look at the phrase, then Saul would become refreshed and well. The term in the Hebrew language means good, but it means something more than good. It means a restoration to wholeness or wellness. His temporary madness and his temporary sadness would somehow go away when Jesse's son shows up. There's a moment of respite. There's a moment of grace. There's a moment of peace. There's a moment of mercy. You know, what's interesting to me is that the Spirit of God left Saul. But the Spirit of God shows up again in the person of David as he sings the songs of God and he sings the worship of the Lord. In Saul, we see the failure of the flesh. And in David, we see a divine remedy. It's interesting to me that music can provide relief and music can provide a sense of satisfaction. Music has a way of pulling us up and encouraging us and strengthening us. But I think it's more than that. The evil spirit is hard-pressed to remain in an environment of praise and worship. Because when you praise the Lord and when you worship the Lord, when you sing of His goodness and you sing of His majesty and you sing of His grace and you sing of His mercy and you sing of His sufficiency and you sing of of the provision, guess what? Your heart begins filled with gladness and joy. Saul's servants may have dealt with the symptoms but they were unable in the end to address the cause. Saul may have felt a certain sense of comfort and peace, but it was a false peace and a temporary peace because Saul needed something more than just the absence of the symptoms. He needed to get right with God. And in order for him to get right with God, he had to be willing to turn from his sin and turn to the Savior. He had to recognize his foolishness, his rebellion, his disobedience, his foolishness in following a circumstances and a place where he didn't belong. But Saul will hold on to his title. And Saul will hold on to his crown. And he doesn't care if God has stripped him of his title and stripped him of his crown and given it to the son of Jesse. You know, that's the same circumstance that human beings find themselves today. They want to be the king of their own life, but God has made Jesus both Lord and King. And because God has made Jesus both Lord and King, He deserves to be worshipped. He deserves to be crowned. He deserves to be followed. He deserves to be obeyed. 
and he deserves our worship. We're going to see him go from singer to soldier in the very next chapter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that each and every one of us is on a downward spiral or an upward spiral. We're making our way to the place that God has always ordained for us. Or we're running away from that place. And Lord, I pray that each and every one of us would ask the question, if someone were to characterize our life, would they be willing to say, the Lord is with him. The Lord is with her. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't put a temporary solution on a long-term problem. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't just find comfort and peace from a Bible study or even a time of worship and continue to live a life of rebellion and disobedience, of wickedness and selfishness. Lord, we pray that our worship and our time in the Word will bring us to a place of humility and submission and a willingness to follow you in every aspect of our life, including what we think, including what we say, and including what we do. Lord, we pray that we would crown David's son, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand.